0: All right, I don't think we have the projector behind me either this morning, so we'll have to follow along in our notebooks especially closely, Um, and if you want to go ahead and grab a sheet from this week's just to help you be a little bit more organized, if you wanted to follow along with the questions from today, maybe that would be a help to you. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 45 as we begin this morning, and I think we'll be looking at a couple texts throughout the day. This is our seventh lesson from the book of Genesis, uh, if you've been keeping up with that. Uh, So I do not think there is another book that we will be in this long the rest of the year. So I think that the pace is going to feel a little bit quicker as we move faster and faster through the Old Testament books. We will not be spending seven weeks in a book again. And I kind of wanted to prepare you for a question that is coming at the end of today's lesson. Uh, You don't have to answer it right now, just wanted to put it on your radar. The question is this, what stands out to you about the book of Genesis? If you were to summarize the message of this book to someone, what would you say? What would you say is maybe the big idea of the book of Genesis. I asked you that kind of at the end of your sheet this week, so be thinking about that. How might you answer that question? What is the big idea? What is God accomplishing? What is the story in a sentence or two of the book of Genesis? As we begin, though, back in Genesis 45, uh, I'll, I'll start off with a little bit of a review where we left off in the life of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph's life is kind of a roller coaster of events. He was once the favorite son And then hated by his brothers and sold into slavery. And then he was in Potiphar's house and he rose to a position of authority only to be falsely accused and imprisoned. And then in prison, he rose again to a position of authority only to be forgotten about for a couple of years. And then he was risen again to second in command of all of Egypt. And Joseph's life is like, woo, up and down. It is a little bit crazy. It's kind of the condensed version of the story, what I just gave you there, but it is while Joseph is second in command in all of Egypt that he is able to really begin storing food for the seven years of famine that is going to take place that Genesis tells us about. And it is while this famine is raging that his brothers come from Canaan to Egypt. And I mentioned this last week, but it is while his brothers come to Egypt to seek grain to keep their families alive, that Joseph almost puts his brothers in a similar predicament to the one that they had been in 20 years before. If you remember, 20 years have passed. There's a new favorite son. This time it is... Benjamin. Benjamin is so favored that Jacob doesn't even want to send him to Egypt in the first place. He's not sure what's going to happen to his new favorite son. So initially, he holds him back until Joseph imprisons Simeon and says, No way is Simeon getting out of prison unless Benjamin returns with you. So the next time the brothers come, they bring Benjamin with them. And they, you know, have a dinner with Joseph. Benjamin is given five times the amount of food that the rest of the brothers are, perhaps kind of inciting some of that favoritism component, uh, showing the other brothers that Benjamin is still the favorite here. And then Joseph plants the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They depart. Joseph sends a servant after him. You know the story. The cup is found in Benjamin's bag. They all come back to Joseph. They tear their clothes. They say, We'll all be your servants. Joseph says, No need. I'll just take Benjamin. Again, it's a similar set of circumstances. Do you see this? Once before, the brothers had already sold out the favorite. They sold him to Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Now they have an opportunity. Sell the favorite brother again, and you guys all get to walk. And who remembers? Who speaks up and says, I will give my life in exchange for Benjamin's? Who remembers? Judah. Yeah, and what a picture of one of Judah's descendants, his greatest descendant, thousands of years later, who would give his life as a ransom for many. That, of course, is Jesus. So that's kind of where we left off in Genesis 44 last week. The brothers have just, well, Judah, really, has just offered himself in place of Benjamin. How does Joseph respond to all of this? Well, as soon as Judah speaks up, And says what he does, Joseph, he dismisses all of the Egyptians from his presence. He starts weeping. He reveals himself to Joseph. I'm your long lost brother. How's dad doing? And you guys tell me, was this kind of a happy family reunion? Were the brothers just thrilled to see Joseph? No, No, they weren't. Uh, The ESV says something like they were distressed or dismayed. Other translations say that they were terrified. I mean, think about it from their perspective. Here they are in a position of, really, they are at Joseph's mercy. They're in a position of lowliness here. Joseph is second in command only to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. And they're wondering to themselves, oh my goodness, Joseph's had 20 years to think about his revenge. What's he going to do to us? This is where we come to our first question this morning, because Joseph addresses his brothers. All right, you're going to have to look at your sheets. Joseph addresses his brothers here. And the very first question is, who does Joseph credit for sending him to Egypt? Andy. God. God. Yeah, think about that for just a second. Three times in these verses, Joseph is explicitly clear that it was not ultimately the brothers who had sent him to Egypt. It was God. And this is the second question then. For what reason was Joseph sent to Egypt. Why did God send Joseph to Egypt? Again, Andy, yeah. To preserve life. life. Yeah, verse five, Joseph says, God sent me here to preserve life. Verse seven, Joseph says again, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. I want you to think about this for just a second here. If Joseph had not been sold into slavery into Egypt, Who is going to interpret Pharaoh's dream? Who is going to be able to prepare for the seven years of famine that are coming if Joseph is not in there in the first place? Imagine the loss of life that is going to take place if Joseph is not in this position that God has put him in. Let's get even more specific than that, because we know the famine wasn't just localized to Egypt. People in Canaan were suffering from the famine here. So what do you think happens to Jacob and his family if Joseph is not in this position to provide for them? What do you think happens to the family of Jacob? Yeah, they starve starve to death. Likely, they die. And why does this specific family, yes, why does this specific family need to be kept alive? Why is this so important? Yeah, John, because Christ is coming through the line of this family. So in some ways, the continuation of God's plan of redemption hinges on Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers so that Christ could come through this family, so that they would be kept alive. Last question here, who does Joseph credit for his rise to power? Diane? He gives all the credit to God. Exactly. This is the second week in a, wo- in a row in which we have observed Joseph giving credit to God. Last week, it was with the dreams that the baker and the cupbearer and Pharaoh had. Joseph was very clear, God is going to reveal the interpretation to you guys. He says over and over and over again, this is God, not me. Here, Joseph is standing before his brothers and he says, God made me ruler of Egypt. He says, God made me, I think he says like a father to Pharaoh. And I want to just pause here and, and, and point out a couple of things that stand out to me. <clears throat> Joseph is quite an example to us, I said this last week, but of someone who admits and acknowledges that God is at work in his life. How often do good things turn out in our own lives, and we really take all of the credit for ourselves? We say, yeah, I'm kind of the puppet master. I'm orchestrating all of these events. I'm you know, disciplined. I'm hardworking. Of course, things turned out in my favor. Joseph is able to say, it was God. God is at work in my life. This is the reason why I'm able to do these things. Here's another observation for you. I'll try to articulate this as clearly as I can. Because Joseph realizes that God is behind all of the circumstances of his life, it enables him to treat his brothers with kindness. Here's what I mean by that. If Joseph had instead believed that his brothers were to blame for being enslaved, his brothers were to blame for all that time that he was in prison, for all the false accusations and being forgotten about, if Joseph believed his brothers were to blame for a terrible, you know, let's say 20 years of his life, then how is he going to treat them when he sees them again? Revenge. He's had a lot of time to think about what he's ever going to do if he gets his hands on his brothers again. But it is because Joseph knows that God was behind all of this that he is able to extend mercy to his brothers. Certainly his brothers sinned against him. That is indisputable. But Joseph realizes that, even more so, God, in his sovereignty and providence, was doing something here. And that allows him to be merciful to his brothers. In fact, in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is going to be able to say to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I want to just summarize a couple of, maybe, ideas I'm trying to get across here. If we truly believe that God is in control of every single circumstance, even terrible ones— then we don't need to get panicked when things happen in our life that seem to be outside of our control. We don't need to get upset at other people when they sin against us. We don't need to take revenge against them, as Joseph very well may have done, because we can see the bigger picture and realize God is doing something here. And he's even using sinful people and their sinful choices to bring about good. A good and loving God is behind the scenes using something terrible for good. And now I want you guys to weigh in on this. We have a bit of a summary statement here with our second question. It says, These verses paint the story of Joseph in an entirely new light. What initially appeared to be a devastating set of circumstances is revealed to be the means by which God would preserve the people of Israel and continue his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me ask you now, how might this passage of Scripture help us to think about situations in life in which we feel we have suffered because of the unjust actions of others? How is Joseph's story instructive for us? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Totally, yeah, sometimes we can't see past, our limited vision is like so obstructed by our circumstances, but we have to trust God. Yeah, any other thoughts? God has a plan for us amidst our situations, and these plans are designed especially to help us to mature in Him and have a closer walk with Him. Yes, I really think you're onto something there. I'm actually going to come back around to that. God has a plan, and He's doing something in our lives as well. Brenda, what were you going to say? Yeah, God never leaves us. He will provide mercy to us. How about this idea right here? I think the story of Joseph and these verses help us from having what is often called a victim mentality. Right? It is this idea that, woe is me, I'm just on the receiving end of a bunch of terrible circumstances. My life is so hard because people have mistreated me. I'm not responsible for any of the things that have happened to me. One person I read put it this way pretty succinctly. It is believing that you can blame others for every problem, insisting you deserve better, and seeing the world only in relation to yourself. Think about this. How easy would it have been for Joseph to think to himself, I'm just in this position because my brothers hated me. It's because I'm a foreigner that everyone's mistreating me. It's because I'm a slave that everyone's just walking all over me. This is why my life is so hard. This is why people mistreat me. This is why people forget about me. Let me ask you, is that the proper explanation for why Joseph spent 13 years as a prisoner and as a slave? Because he was just treated so poorly, because he was just a victim of all of his circumstances. Is that why Joseph was a prisoner and a slave? No way. It was because God sent him there. Joseph had a proper perspective. To think any other way would have been really unbiblical. From a human perspective, it sure seemed like life was pretty terrible for Joseph, and yet God was in control. And perhaps already as we've been talking about this, a familiar verse has come to mind. That is Romans 8.28, that God works together all things for good. Contextually, the good that Romans 8.28 is talking about is being conformed to the image of Christ. Sometimes things don't always appear good to us. Certainly, this verse isn't teaching that only good things will happen to us, and life isn't going to be rainbows and flowers. But it is saying that everything in our lives is going to work together for good. Specifically, as Claire said, we are going to be conformed into the image of Christ. I really hope that the story of Joseph impacts the way that you think about even unjust circumstances. You can know that things do not happen by accident, that God in his sovereignty does not make mistakes, and no matter what you've experienced, however hard it might be, there is a good and loving God working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Joseph's story here is incredible for suffering people who are perhaps in the midst of something incredibly difficult. You can look at Joseph's story and say, okay, God did something awesome in his life. I can trust God to work out things in my life as well. We come to Genesis 46 and 47. Joseph had sent his brothers back to the land of Canaan and said, all of you guys come back, bring dad with you. Uh, You know, I've already got a plot of land picked out for you guys to settle and live in. When Jacob hears the news that Joseph is alive, his heart is numb, the text says. I mean, for the last 20 years, he thinks his son has been dead, and so he packs up his whole family and begins moving to Egypt. And it's while he's on his way there that God speaks to him in a vision. God tells him that a promise is going to be fulfilled relatively soon— as Jacob and his family begin this migration, what promise should we expect God to keep here? Andy that he's going to make them a great nation. Now, do you remember? This was part of the original promise God had made to Abraham. There were these three components. One, that Abraham was going to be a great nation, that he was going to have a land to possess, and that through Abraham, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And here in Egypt, we're going to begin to see one of the fulfillment of those promises. How does Genesis 47, 27 describe the growth of the people of Israel? What kind of language does it use to describe how quickly? Yes, yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We don't get an exact figure here in Genesis 47, but by the time of the Exodus, a couple of hundred years later, we're told that there are 600,000 men that leave Egypt. Now, that's just men. Uh, Estimates put the whole population around. I think I've seen like a 2 million person estimate here. God is keeping his promise, and he's doing it in an incredible way by moving them out of Canaan into Egypt, where they are allowed really to thrive. And that's kind of where this next question comes in, because in Genesis 47, verses 1 to 6, we see God's provision for the people of Israel in yet another way. How did you see God provide for them in chapter 47? What does God do for them there? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, he settles them in the best part of the land. It's unbelievable. Here are these immigrants who come to Egypt in the time of a famine. And you would think to yourself, well, they're just going to get like the dusty old corner of Egypt, maybe. That's not what happens. They get to settle in literally the best that Egypt has to offer. That's God. And it is in this uh, geographical setting that the people of Israel are allowed to thrive. They are allowed to expand into this huge population because God is at work. He's given Israel the best of Egypt. He's allowing them to multiply. He's keeping his promise. So I wanted you to reflect on two truths that are evident from these chapters. God provides and God keeps his promises. These are repeated themes throughout. I hope it is clear to you from the book of Genesis. If nothing else, God is faithful to his word. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He provides for his people. Pretty awesome for us to consider. We come to Genesis 48 now. Jacob is here on his deathbed, and the next couple of chapters are going to focus on his blessing to his actually grandsons, and then his sons, it's in chapter 48 that Jacob blesses his grandsons first. He takes uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he tells Joseph, essentially, that he's going to adopt his grandsons, and says that these guys are going to have a place right alongside my natural sons, Reuben and Simeon, you know, here are Manasseh and Ephraim, I'm adopting them. And when Joseph brings his sons in front of Jacob, he positions them in such a way that Jacob is actually just going to be able to reach out, and his right hand will be on Manasseh, the oldest, and his left hand will be on Ephraim, the youngest. However, who knows what Jacob does when he reaches out?
1: He crosses his
0: hands. When you read the story, you just have to chuckle to yourself, right? I mean, this is like Jacob at his finest. He's always been the trickster. Here he is, switches his arms. Puts his right hand on the youngest, left hand on the oldest. When Joseph sees this, he's actually pretty upset. He tries to adjust his dad, his dad's hands. And Jacob's like, no, I did this the right way. I'm blessing the youngest over the oldest. And Hebrews 11, interestingly enough, actually cites Jacob's blessing of his sons as an act of faith. And I asked you, how do you see Jacob's faith on display in this chapter here? Why would Hebrews 11 pick out this one instance in Jacob's life and say, this was an act of faith? Any thoughts on that? Let's look at verse 16, if you're in Genesis 48. I think the key uh, uh, is found in this verse. And to be honest, I was a little bit puzzled by this uh, inclusion from Hebrews 11 as well, but I think 16 has the answer for us. Jacob is saying, picking up in verse 16, "...the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys." And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Notice this key phrase here and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Anyone want to take a stab at how that is Jacob's faith on display for us? Claire? Yes, exactly right. It appears that Jacob is recalling the promise that God had made to him, and he's looking forward with eyes of faith. He's on his deathbed. He's not going to see this promise come to pass, and yet he still speaks to Ephraim and Manasseh and says that you guys are going to be made into a multitude. He believes God's word. In faith, He is able to look past even his own death and say that there is coming a day in which these guys are going to be a multitude of people. I think that's exactly it. Uh, History will tell us. Ephraim and Manasseh actually get their own tribe. We'll see that as we read through the story. You may have wondered, why doesn't Joseph get a tribe? Well, his two sons do. I, I read an article or two within the last couple of weeks that said that Joseph receives the birthright, as 1 Chronicles 5 tell us, and perhaps that double blessing that Joseph received actually is kind of demonstrated for us in two of his sons receiving a blessing. I don't know if that's Technically true or not, but I thought that was an interesting idea that the birthright could have been uh, or the double blessing of the birthright could have been given to Jacob's two sons. So in a way, Joseph has two tribes instead of just one. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that was just something kind of interesting I encountered. The big idea is Jacob's faith in this chapter. One commentator said this, that it was an act of faith since Jacob could not give what had been promised to his grandsons. Jacob was totally dependent on God to fulfill the promised blessings. And here's the point, in death, Jacob had faith. And I think we can pause here and just look a little bit introspectively at our lives and be challenged to think about our own death are we going to have those eyes of faith that still look forward? Not on any works that we have accomplished, not on a lifetime of doing, 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 but upon our death, we still have faith and hope alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. What an example to us to die in faith. One more question from this chapter here. How does Jacob describe God's care for him over the course of his life in verse 15. Kaylee. Yeah. He says that God shepherded me, which is really interesting because Jacob was a shepherd himself, so he knows all of the intricacies of what it is to be a shepherd. Maybe you know, if we borrowed from the language of Psalm 23, he would say, I know God has led me beside the still waters. God has been my shepherd. And I know we did this just a couple of weeks ago, when uh, I asked you to just talk about God's provision in your own life. But I was wondering if anyone this morning would just be willing to share about specific instances in your life in which you could see the Lord shepherding you. If you already did a couple weeks ago, no need to again. But I just thought, hey, what an awesome opportunity to talk about God's shepherding of your life. Yeah, tell me. Yeah, God shepherded you through the midst of a really hard trial. Any other testaments to God's shepherding? Ava. Yeah, totally, being able to see God even use other people to help shepherd and walk with you through a hard time. All right, well, regardless of whether or not you shared, I think it is a good exercise for us as Christians to pause and think about this. I will be the first to admit that I am so forgetful about the things that the Lord has done for me. And so intentionally, you know, I'm not going to give you a frequency with which you should do this, but make this a regular part of your life where you pause and think about what God has done, about the ways that he has shepherded you time and time and time again to bring you to where you are today. As I did this this week, my heart was moved with gratitude just seeing at what God has done for me. I know we've kind of given Jacob a bad rap at times throughout this study, sometimes deservedly so. He is the trickster. He is the heel grabber. He did make some poor choices in his life, but what an awesome way to finish to say, God has been my shepherd, I will look forward with eyes of faith at what God is going to do. In Genesis 49, Jacob finishes blessing his grandsons. Now he turns his attention to his 12 sons, and he gives a series of blessings to his sons that are honestly fascinating. I'll just comment on a couple of them. Uh, You may have wondered why Reuben, the firstborn, does not receive the blessing or the birthright. It was Joseph, 1 Chronicles tells us. Well, Reuben had disqualified himself. I did not mention this, but back in chapter 35, Reuben actually was immoral with one of his dad's wives, and it appears that that is the reason that he is not considered for the blessing here. Simeon and Levi also are overlooked for their actions back in 34. We also did not read that chapter, but they murder a whole town for their treatment of Uh, for the town's treatment of their sister. So these guys are overlooked as well. Uh, Titus and I were actually talking uh, a week or two ago, and he pointed out that it's really interesting that even though Levi, um, I wouldn't say he's cursed, but he doesn't get the greatest blessing in this passage of scripture, Levi is actually chosen to be the tribe of priests. Really interesting that God still uses um, a tribe whose forefather was not... That great of a man, to be honest. Uh, Joseph gets his own blessing, which is actually the longest of the group, but I really wanted to turn our attention to the blessing of Judah in verses eight to 12. What animal is Judah compared to in these verses here? Brenda) Mindful. A lion. Yeah, some of the other brothers get compared to animals as well. Uh, one of them's compared to a donkey, another to a snake, uh, one to a deer. So like Judah definitely gets the best uh, animal comparison here <laughs> called, uh, you know, when you think of a lion, you think of power. right? It is not for no reason that it is called the king of the jungle. It is a fearsome animal, not one you want to be caught up against alone in the wilderness somewhere. If the blessing had stopped there, pretty awesome for Judah. But how is his rule described? It it continues and describes a future rule. In what terms does it speak of Judah's rule? Brenda? um, Yeah, with great authority. If you're looking at verse uh, 10, I think that's probably the best Verse that describes his rule. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The ESV says, Until tribute comes to him. If you're looking at a King James or a NASB, it says, Until Shiloh comes, which a lot of people think is a title for the Messiah. If you're looking at an NIV, it says something a little. It doesn't just roll off the tongue, but the NIV says, until he to whom it belongs comes, essentially meaning that there is a future person who owns this scepter who is coming. Now, there's three different interpretations on what exactly that line should be. I think the last phrase of verse 10 makes it clear that whichever it is, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, there is coming a ruler from Judah that all of the nations are going to obey and in case you haven't connected the dots yet according to revelation 5 5 who is this blessing to judah ultimately preparing us for jesus yeah let's go ahead and just turn to revelation 5 really quick because it is too cool not to pass over Here in Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle John is standing by the throne as a mighty angel calls out with a loud voice there in verse 2, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And initially, no one is worthy. It's almost like the, you could hear a pin drop. And John begins to weep until one of the elders says to him in verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. These are some of the most awesome words in the book of Revelation. A lot of times, Jesus is described as a lamb. Here he is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There is a power, a regality to this. The description of Jesus that we are going to get in Revelation is not timid. He is here to rule, and he is here to judge. As I was thinking about this, it was apparent to me that C.S. Lewis knew what he was doing, when he made Aslan a lion, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And perhaps you remember that famous, um, just uh, that famous line from the first book in particular, when the Pevensey kids first find out that Aslan is a lion. And at first they are taken aback, whoa, a lion? Uh, it's kind of scary. They ask, you know, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What an awesome line. What a picture of Jesus. For those who are his children, there is refuge, there is safety, there is peace, but for those who set themselves against Christ, they're going to experience the fury of that lion. They're going to experience the judgment of this king from Judah. So I asked you, um, I'm sorry, last question here from Genesis 49. What are some things that come to mind as you see this connection that spans Genesis to Revelation? What are just some comments that you have as you see this interconnectedness here? Anyone willing to share? Claire. Okay. And the of God, who is Christ. Yeah. Seeing some of that interconnectedness there. Any other thoughts as you just reflect? John. I just God's plan will be accomplished from start to finish. Yeah. Nothing will in Yeah. From start to finish, God's plan will be accomplished from book one of the Old Testament to book 66 of the New there is this thread that is woven throughout so clearly in the book of Genesis. We could point to a lot of occasions in which we see God's plan uh, being brought about here. In fact, we're going to do that in just a couple of minutes. But I just, you know, you read this and you think to yourself, wow, God's word is awesome. It can be trusted. If between thousands of years of human history, there's a promise to Judah about, you know, the scepter that is going to be his, he's called this lion, to Jesus in Revelation 5 being the lion of the tribe of Judah, God's word is awesome. It can be trusted. From Genesis chapter 50, we get to the last book of Genesis here. Jacob passes away. It's kind of the end of an era. He's the last of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's dead. The people of Israel, excuse me, actually, the people of Egypt, they mourn for 70 days at Jacob's death. And once kind of the dust settles and people are going back to their life as normal, the brothers come to Joseph and they're like, hey, uh, some of dad's last words were, don't kill us, you know, essentially what he says. And uh, Joseph is like, guys, 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 don't worry about it. I'm going to provide for you and your children. It's there that the famous lines are, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We're struck by Joseph's example in forgiving other people and not harboring bitterness and not seeking vengeance, understanding God has been at work throughout this. And he actually has some kind of, honestly, strange instructions regarding his bones. But what event was Joseph anticipating by faith in verse 25 when he gives instructions about what to do with his bones? What event is Joseph anticipating? Bonnie. The promised land. Yeah, Joseph is anticipating the exodus. That there is coming a day Israel is not always going to be in Egypt forever. He says, When you guys leave, take my bones with you. What an act of faith to know that even past his death, God is going to keep his promise. He's bringing them back to the promised land. And so actually, Uh, In a couple of weeks when we read Exodus 13, interestingly enough, Moses does just that. They're on their way out, and at some point in that process, he grabs Joseph's bones and brings it with him. But by faith, Joseph looks into the future and says, God's going to keep his word. We have a couple of verses. Perhaps Joseph was remembering what his dad had said to him, because Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Maybe Joseph remembered, hey, dad said we're going back to this land. Maybe he remembered what God had said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, when God says, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God said this to Abraham. And maybe Joseph knows about this, and he's about to die, and he says, I remember what God had said. I remember the faith of my dad. I will have that faith as well and give instructions regarding my bones. So here we are coming to the final question of the book, or excuse me, like I prepared you for. Our final question from the book of Genesis here. In a sentence or two, describe the big picture of what God is doing in the book of Genesis. How would you summarize? We've read, I don't know, 47 out of 50 chapters here. What is God doing in a sentence. Brenda? He's setting the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ. Ah, that's a good way of putting it. Any other thoughts? Andy? Uh, laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus. Laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus. Totally. You guys are knocking this out of the park. Any other thoughts? Timmy? He's revealing himself and his perfect plan. Yeah, revealing himself and his perfect plan. You guys are doing awesome. Right, The story of Genesis is not just some random stories about dusty guys who lived in the desert, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I don't know why these are here. No, God is preparing. He's paving the way for Jesus Christ. And so I have a rough timeline um, for you on the screen here, but I want us, with the final couple of minutes we have, to just remember some of the major characters of the book of Genesis. And I'm actually going to involve you guys a little bit here. How do Adam and Eve fit in to the redemptive timeline of Genesis? What should we remember from the story of Adam and Eve that propels the plot forward? Hava? Yeah, Joy, I saw your hand is raised as well. Exactly. If you remember nothing else from Adam and Eve's story, Remember Genesis 3.15, that God made a promise to Eve in the middle of all of these curses. He's meeting out punishments to the serpent, to the woman, to man. It's humanity's darkest day, but God tells Eve, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent, or bruise it, as the ESV words it. Yeah, uh, Noah doesn't have a messianic prophecy per se, but actually it doesn't, but we would consider Noah's story really as a... I guess, continuation, or the promise goes through him. And that is in part because Noah and his family are the only ones left on earth. Right? So God's promise has to be continued through Noah. Now we'll come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How how do these three guys propel the plot of Genesis forward? What should we be remembering from their story? How was Christ anticipated through the patriarchs? Claire? Claire? Okay, they're certainly in the genealogy of Christ. What should we remember from their story that anticipates Christ? Any, anyone remember? The promises. Yeah, God made a series of promises, reiterated them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the most noteworthy being that through these guys, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. That blessing, of course, speaking about Jesus and the righteousness It is available through Christ to everybody by faith. And then after the patriarchs, we come to Judah, who is the descendant of Jesus. And then, you know, here we are at the end of Genesis. And we can already see a number of instances in which God has laid the groundwork, prepared the way for Jesus Christ. I've been saying this a lot, but I hope one of the things that is very apparent to you is that the Bible is one interconnected story that the old and new testaments are not you know some disconnected these are the stories and then we get to jesus you know and that's where we'll spend most of our time but there's interconnectedness here and i hope that you have seen the role that faith plays throughout all of this every person who has ever had to come to god has done so by faith so too do we come to the first page of the book of genesis and there's a decision will we have faith in what God has said about the origin of the world, or are we going to let our culture scientists tell us about how the world came into being? We hopefully choose, I have faith in God. We come to Exodus beginning next week and the crossing of the Red Sea, and we say, I believe it. And we keep going through the Old Testament, exercising faith, so that when we come to Christ, we accept him by faith as well. I hope you were uh, encouraged just thinking about Genesis these last couple of months here. And uh, what God is doing. Let's end with a word of prayer. Lord, we stand in awe of your Word and just what you have chosen to reveal to us here in the first book of the Bible. And and this is just the tip of the iceberg. We, We have so much more in front of us this year of seeing your plan brought about. Help us, Lord, to have faith, to believe you, to come to your Word as our authority say, Lord, whatever you say here, I will just accept by faith. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your goodness to us in giving us this precious book, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.